The race to 5G is on, and the battle for talent is getting fierce. Welcome to 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, a podcast dedicated to helping you face the future workforce head on. Navigate this challenging talent landscape with innovative strategies to attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. Only here on 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, CEO of Broadstaff Talent Solutions. I'm Carrie Charles, and I want to welcome you today to this episode of 5G Talent Talk. And I am so thrilled to have with me one of our valued clients, as well as one of our friends, Paul Fatuccia. He is the president and general manager of Advanced Network Services, better known to all of us in the industry as ANS. Paul, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you so much, Carrie, and uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak with you and give folks some insight into ANS and myself. Absolutely. We've known you for quite some time now. I think you were one of the first people that I met when I came into the industry five years ago. So I know I'm a baby in the industry compared to everyone else. I know you have had a nice long journey and I want you to talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. I mean, what was your motivation in starting ANS? Sure. So a little bit about me and my background first that kind of got me there and kind of drove who I am. First and foremost, I am the product of immigrant parents from Italy, which gave me an unbelievable work ethic. Uh, they worked 24-7, and when they weren't working, they were working some more. So that always made it good for me and showed me the true path. And then along the way, you know, as a kid, I played sports, team sports, individual sports. That also helped craft some of my background. Then one of my first jobs just out of high school, as I did take a sabbatical for a couple of years before I went to college, I was a door-to-door pots and pans sale. <laughs> no way. So uh, I think I honed into some of my customer relationship techniques doing that and getting my, the door slammed in my face. <laughs> um, I went on to community college in electrical engineering, got a job in the cable TV industry as the cable guy. Yes, <laughs> I got some more doors slammed on me as well. And then I was fortunate enough that the cable company that I worked for paid for me to finish my bachelor's degree in electrical and also paid for my master's degree in telecom network management from Syracuse University. And then from there, I moved on a few years later and met PT, my partner in crime, as I'll say, in ANS Advanced Network Services. And that was 22 years ago. And we've just built a really good company based on the family foundation that both him and I experienced as kids. So family is core to our business. We really try to give people flexibility in their jobs as much as possible. So we've actually used the work from home model for many, many years. Well over 20 years, I've had engineers working remotely and initially had a lot of challenges because the network topology back then wasn't as robust as it is today. So there was definitely challenges, but that allowed folks, especially on the engineering side, to be able to work mornings, evenings, whenever they did their jobs the best, and gave them the flexibility to stuff with their families as needed. Since then, we've also evolved more in allowing to have our project managers be remote. We do use a regionalized model in our business. So that regionalized model in our business allows us to try to get the resources as close to the customers as possible but also utilizing warehouses in those areas, but also the flexibility of a work from home environment. So that's been very good for us. Let me ask you, Paul, can you expand on that a little bit more, your challenges with the remote workers or your remote PMs, as well as your engineers? Because I know there's other folks in the industry that are you know, really struggling with that. Do I go remote? Do I not? And they have the models that have worked for so many years. So what have been your challenges and then how did you overcome those? Sure. So some of the, like I spoke about a few minutes ago, the network and the systems that you have have to be capable of allowing people to work from home and not 
hinder them in any way. So that's number one is making sure that you have a solid network. We've embraced the cloud concept now for many years using AWS, some other cloud type SaaS software models that allow easy functionality when you're working from home. The largest Mm -hmm. challenges that I think have really come from trying to get our back office staff and support working remotely is there is little things that you don't think about, like how do we process the mail when it comes in? And we still have customers that send manual checks into us. So those kinds of things have caused a little bit of logistical issues, but we've kind of worked through it with scheduling people in the office every day and have them being able to rotate through and things of that nature. And we are starting, we've actually implemented a new payroll and HR software platform that is actually going to make it easier from an HR perspective to be remote as well. We'll have more of our records online versus having to have filing cabinets filled with reams of paper that we're just killing trees at that point. I think Hmm. other component of remote work comes from being able to monitor people's performances. It's actually pretty simple from a engineering and project management standpoint to tell who's who in the pew, as I like to say. (laughs) Um, They're either getting their work done or they're not. And that shows up maybe not like on a daily basis, but definitely over the course of a couple of weeks, as you do financials and things of that nature, you can tell if people are on target with their projects, the amount of projects that they may have that they're managing and level loading that casework, we'll call it, for each individual PM and engineer is a challenge because obviously we'd like to say they're all the same, but they're not. There's different ones that have different skill sets. So that's a challenge, making sure that they have enough on their plate or they don't have too much on their plate. Right. And then the last piece is the logistics. For us, we have multiple warehouses in multiple states, and so they have to be manned. And we've really kind of made it where, okay, our deliveries come in and we have folks working in there that accept the deliveries and then load the trucks up to get them out to the job site. So those, unfortunately, you can't make those remote. They have people there to man the warehouses, as well as the folks that are working on the job sites. The good news is for us, we do have a fairly large amount of work that is engineering in nature. Not that we're really known as an engineering company, but we do have close to 20 engineers on staff. So that's easy to manage, but the logistics is definitely a challenge. And then the flexibility as well with the field personnel. So a good portion of the work that we do on the network side for Verizon, for example, or some of the other data center companies that we interface with is really work that's done at night, typically from 10 at night to five, six in the morning, in some cases, midnight to five, sometimes on the weekends. So that gives us some flexibility with the folks if they need to have stuff during the week going back to the family concept where we can offer some flexibility, less so than on the PM and the engineering side and the back office, but we try to accommodate them as well. That's very helpful because Paul, we are running into quite a few candidates with our staffing firm saying, we need a remote job or we have a remote offer over here. We don't wanna work in the office anymore, or at least we want some flexibility or a hybrid model or something. And we are running into that more and more and more as companies go back into offices post-COVID, if there is such a thing called post-COVID. So thank you for sharing that. But tell me a little bit more about ANS, services, products, customers, markets, number of employees, all of that. Sure. So I'll start with the products. So we started historically as a staffing company, actually, back at the early 90s, and also doing PBX work in colleges and hospitals. So the, we'll call it enterprise PBX, or now soft switch phones, is a separate company under the Next Ridge umbrella called Tag Solutions. So we still do that business. And then on the ANS side, we really evolved from staffing to EF&I for the R-Box. So that was really in the mid-90s after the Telecom Act in 96 and all the co-location and dot-com stuff. 
we got into the EF and I services primarily for uh, large equipment manufacturers, Lucent, Fujitsu, ADC, Ericsson, Nortel was a big one for us as well. And then from there, we evolved into doing work directly for the R-Box. So back then you had Snap, Ameritech, Hackbell, 9X, Bell Atlantic. And then as they merged, those names became more consolidated into AT&T and Verizon, right? So those were the two primary horses we did work for back then on the network side. And by network, we did switching. So large-scale 5E switches, a lot of toll infrastructure, fiber systems, transport equipment, all that stuff. And then DC power as well. So a lot of DC power back then. We still had that core business. So we're not a cluster vendor for AT&T anymore. Won't go into that as much, but we are definitely that for Verizon still. And also for some private data center companies as well. So that's one, the DC power, uh, we've continued to do that work. And that's quite a bit of our work as well. A lot of large scale DC power as well as small scale by small scale. I mean, cell site power by large scale. I talk about 10,000 amp plants, multiple 10,000 amp plants and how they're all tied together with common infrastructure and things of that nature. So that's still a core business. We then got into the cell tower business about 15 years ago. And actually, it took us three tries or three swings, as I like to say. We never Mm -hmm. did anything successfully the first time around, but we do have that try, try again attitude. So the first time we tried the tower business was right at the end of 3G getting implemented and the work kind of drying up for about a year or two. We tried it again about a year prior to 4G getting launched, and that was very successful. So that is now a bit of offering that we have, and our tower work really comes in three flavors. We do the classic antenna line, or what I'd like to refer to as technology change out for mm-hmm. the carriers directly, Verizon being the largest of our customers, but we also do dabble with T-Mobile. We used to do a little Sprint work. We do a little AT&T work. We've been in in and out of the turf model with AT&T over the last 15 years as well. Then there's the new build tower sites, and they come in a couple different flavors, whether it's a tower itself, or it's a water tank, or it's a stealth site or it's a water tank. So those are all different new build or new site builds. And then we also have a struct mod group that does structural modifications on towers. That's typically welding steel, bolting new steel on, as well as concrete foundation work, things of that nature. So that's our tower business. And then from there, about five or six years ago, we launched into the DAS and in-building world where we actually have got several RF engineers on staff, actually some young ones that we've created out of various university programs. You know, myself being from SUNY Binghamton in the double E program, picked up a couple SUNY Binghamton guys, which, you know, that was IBM's training ground, as well as some folks from Maryland and whatnot. So we've really got a good core of young engineers that have gotten very experienced very quickly And so that's on the DAS side. And then from the DAS piece has evolved into the private LTE services that we're offering today in building private networks for various organizations out there on the enterprise side, really focusing on entertainment, hospitals, and actually large logistics, like the post office, for example. We do a fair amount of work for the USPS and the federal government. And then the last piece of the in-building was really Peelit, which is our maintenance and monitoring platform that's been around for a little bit as a base platform. We've kind of are in the final stages of evolving to version four of that. And there's two components to Peelit. One is the base platform that does the monitoring of the various systems. And then we have like a GUI interface that the customers interface with that allows them to put trouble tickets in, allows us to pull reports. And it's really that customer slash or not interface into the network. So that's getting rebranded as Peel It. 
you should be seeing a bunch of stuff coming out over the next couple months. In and that's peel it, P-E-E-L-I-T, peel it, like a peeling a banana. Peeling the network back. So we're peeling, peeling the network. Back. Okay. You no, know, we kind of looked at instead of the banana, we used to use the onion analogy. You peel the onion, you get to the layers, you get to the real core of it. And that's the same with the peel it as a product from a maintenance and monitoring perspective. So that is a nationwide platform that we're using for the post office and a bunch of Verizon facilities as well. You okay. talked about regions, our regional approach. We're in headquartered in upstate New York in Albany. We're also in New York City. Do we have another facility in Philadelphia? We're also in Columbus, Ohio. Do a lot of work in the Columbus market in Michigan and Detroit and a little further south as well, West Virginia, things of that nature, Indiana, and then also in Chicago. So we have a little bit of an office in Chicago. Actually, years ago in the old Ameritech days, we spent a lot of time in Chicago and we still do some work for AT&T Labs out there as well. I was born in Chicago. I didn't stay oh, there long. <laughs> I love it. I'm actually going there next week. So uh, That's awesome. I love going back there. I was only there till age two, but I can still say I was born in Chicago. So. <laughs> it's not winter, though. It's like up right. New York. Not really great places to be. Yeah. No, this Florida girl is going to stay right here. Yeah. I like to travel, but come back home. So, Paul, listening to you talk, I'm hearing so many different evolutions of your business and innovations as well. And I'm curious, what has been your growth strategy as to how you have adopted, innovated, and created these new products over and over and over because you have so much now. So what has been that strategy that's caused that? So I guess a couple things, right? First is that I think I'm a person that can visualize stuff and visualize what's out there. So I've always been blessed with that. And I don't think that's something that you can really learn. So I do have that going for me. And I have a few folks around me that, that are like that. And, you know, I've been accused once or twice of chasing butterflies. And not everything <laughs> I see is necessarily successful. But also we utilize some tools as well. There's a couple of books that are out there, Business Model Generation, which uses this thing called the Canvas process, which basically allows you to really dial in a product line from a customer perspective, from a needs perspective, and also the value proposition, as well as costs and sell points and partner relationships that you need to launch them. And there's so many things that go into really launching new products. So that's number one. The other thing is really keeping your ear to the grindstone and yep. doing a lot of research, right? So I'm constantly scrubbing the environment to see what's coming next. Very early on, when we were a vendor for 9X and Bell Atlantic, we started hearing about this FIO stuff. So we jumped on the outside plant. Uh, bandwagon and started doing a lot of the engineering on the files. Same thing with 4G, probably about a year or so prior to 4G getting launched, started spending a lot of time listening to what the FCC was talking about. And then also what the leaders of these large organizations are talking about. They give you the signals as to where they're going. You just have to be astute mm -hmm. enough to listen to those signals and then try to say, hey, what's my organization like? What is not a heavy lift for us to bolt on to move down that path? And being an engineering construction company, we've always looked at it that project management really can be applied, the, the principles of project management, to a lot of different technologies or yeah. even construction businesses that are out there. It's all the same in essence, just the specific tasks that you do for deploying that technology or building the bridge or putting in HVAC systems all kind of follow suit. So I've always just tried to push us down the path of bolting on things that are similar to what we do so it doesn't put a lot of strain on the organization. Having said that, we are embarking quite a bit over the last few months and doing quite a bit of research and work on the EV charging station of the world, which is something new. And why EV charging stations? How's that fit into telecom, right? 
So the similarities are in that either one, you're playing with large scale utility organizations, one on the power grid infrastructure side, in the case of EV charging, we're also playing in that side with small cell technology as we're deploying a lot of small cells. We're interfacing a lot more with utility companies because we're putting assets on their property. So that relationship is evolved. And then our ability several years ago to go out and get a bunch of AC electrical licenses in multiple states. In some states like New York, it's more difficult. You can't get a statewide license. It's actually four states, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and in California, where you have to get licenses per municipality versus places like North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and whatnot. They're just statewide. You take Mm -hmm. the test once and you got the licenses. So we've got about eight or 10 now, I think, under our belt. We're acquiring more as the work evolves in the different markets that we work with to try to get that. And then bridging the gap between utility and telecom is really a no-brainer. And really what pointed that out was going through the Canvas process with the business model generation tool to really show that, hey, what we're doing really has like cell site power, AC stuff that we typically contracted out a lot and now starting to do more of that in-house. The small cell stuff, which is single phase, low level power. And oh, by the way, these charging stations fit right in there as well. So those kind of three things we outlined as things that were easy for us to implement without putting a lot of extra burden on our folks that work for ANS. Now, some of the engineers will probably tell you I'm driving them crazy (laughs) because we are trying to push the envelope a little bit. But, you know, we'll see how that goes. I think it's going to be very successful for us, actually. You know, Paul, you're a visionary. And there is a book that I follow. And I'm happy to hear. I'm glad to hear about the Canvas model. But I've always followed the Traction, the book Traction. Uh And it talks about the visionary. And it's funny you say, well, look, I've made some mistakes. But I see something and then we execute it. And that definitely is something that I'm very aware of because I do the same thing. And The other piece I wanted to mention is this whole idea around electric vehicle charging stations. We have four electric vehicles in our family, all right? And constantly I was getting all of these charges on my credit card, you know, my kids have electric vehicles. And so I was getting all these charges for charging station, charging station, charging station. I thought, well, I'm gonna just put one in my house, which I did, but it's frustrating because my daughter has to drive, we have to drive 20 minutes and she sits there for, 30, 45 minutes to charge your car. So anyway, it's a massive opportunity and something that we all need. So please hurry and put charging stations in Tampa. I <laughs> even I have one at my house now. I mean, it's a great opportunity. So I love to hear just that innovation from a true visionary that it lights you up. And I can tell you're passionate about it. I'd like to get your thoughts on where are we headed? I mean, you do the research, you're at the shows. I mean, when we can go, I always see you there and you're soaking up the information, you're learning, you're talking to people. Where are we going? Where's the industry headed? You know, the recent Biden broadband plan, which was, I believe, $100 billion. And I mean, there was so much happening in the industry. So give me your thoughts on where we are going. So 5G really is kind of much different than 4G, right? 4G was very specific. It was the 700 megahertz spectrum that was out there. And everybody built primarily to that standard. Now, there was a few deviations with PCS band and the AWS band all getting lumped into LTE 4G. 5G is much different. So it's not like the carriers are scrapping that network. That's all there and gets integrated into 5G as well as some of this millimeter wave technology that we're talking about and with T-Mobile with the the 600 meg spectrum and then with the auctions that were just put out there with the C-band spectrum and then the CBRS spectrum, right? So there's all these frequencies floating around there. And then, oh, by the way, let's not forget about the cable companies that are out there that have an an enormous amount of spectrum as well that offer 5G now uh, today. And so in my mind, the actual network type and the carriers are going to be, and you've got to be careful when I say this, 
I think they're going to be less significant as far as what the topology is for the network. And it's really going to boil down to the applications that, that are on there. I mean, we saw it with 4G, with the Uber and all that evolving applications that were put on the network. I think there's going to be so much more that comes in over the next five years that we don't even know what it is, right? And they talk about autonomous vehicles and robots. Now I saw robots delivering your pizza. (laughs) Actually, I think in California right now where they have this autonomous vehicle that drives around, it looks like something out of the Jetsons. For (laughs) And the only thing that's missing is Rover the dog. This thing will pull up to your house. You walk out, the door opens and you grab your pizza. So in some respects, it's bad because we're eliminating lower level jobs. But in other respects, it's good because it's creating, I think, better paying jobs in some cases. So I just don't think the topology type is going to be as critical as the applications. And I do see the melting of infrastructure. I mean, you've got utility guys definitely building private networks. You got Google and Apple and Amazon and all these folks building networks that are all kind of relying on each other. So the convergence is definitely well underway and that's what's going to happen. I do think though, as organizations like us, it is challenging because you have to be current with the technology because it is evolving much quicker. So if you look at historically, the phone companies typically had a time frame of about 30 years of taking advantage of whatever technology they deployed. So when you look at the old crossbar switches and movement into the digital world in the 90s, they were able to monetize those switches for 30 years. That's not the case anymore. It is much more in alignment with IT that's out there where you have maybe two, three years at best to be able to take advantage of that technology. So in some respect, it's good for guys like us because we have a constant evolving workload, but it's also bad in that I can't stick 10 guys on the job site for a month. I've got to move them around. So that's changing the model, not only for us internally, but also like support organizations that we use like broad staff to help us supplement our folks. So those models are changing. And I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that you just have to change. Yes, you are so right about that. Tell me about the ANS culture. What sets you apart? Sure. So I touched upon it a little earlier, the family dynamic and trying to really think of it as a family. And in all good families, you have civil rivalries and in the brothers fight from time to time and the brothers and sisters fight from time to time and the sisters fight from time to time. And sometimes the parents get involved as well. So us having that mindset that it's okay to challenge each other, but at the end of the day, when we walk out from behind closed door meeting or whatever, we're all pulling the rope in the same direction. And that comes by trying not to have ego involved. Ego is a killer in any organization. Not to say we don't have some ego, we definitely do, but we definitely try to check it try to have humility and realize that we're going to make mistakes. None of us are perfect. I always say we don't all have beards. We don't wear sandals. And so we are definitely prone to making mistakes. So I'm okay with making mistakes. If you make them three times, yeah, that's not a mistake anymore. You're just not learning. So I think it's really important to allow folks to make mistakes there was a scene in Top Gun. I love that movie, right? And yeah. New one's coming out. When Scarrett's talking to uh, Tom Cruise and he says, look it, when you're up there, you have to push the envelope, but you will make mistakes. And when you're down, you have to analyze and evaluate what you've done wrong so that you don't make the mistake the next time. And I think I am definitely in that mindset. I am far from perfect. You heard me say that we've launched different things that have worked some that haven't. I kick myself about some things that I think we probably pulled the plug on too soon. And if we cooked it a little longer, it may have been good. 
So I think that's number one. Number two is really constant learning. You have to constantly be evolving. And it comes at a price. So we do try to make investments. And I kind of lump them into four buckets where you have blocking and tackling type training that you have to do, the comp train certifications, the OSHA stuff, things of that nature. Uh, Then the second bucket is technical training, whether that's via manufacturers or test equipment or sending folks to, for example, we've got a gentleman that's been an engineer for us. We're now shifting them into a DC power engineering role. So we send them to power engineering classes up to speed on that. The third one is sales training. A lot of people like to say, oh, we just send salespeople to training. I actually think it's more important to send your operations folks, uh, whether project managers or engineers to, to sales training, not for really selling, but more on how to interact with clients because they really are the ones that are interfacing with our customers. In 80% of our work comes from existing clients. So we want to make sure uh-huh. we care of them. And then number four is really management and executive management training that we put folks through that are moving up the ranks. Typically, we'll put someone in manager training program and we use MPI, which is actually something that was homegrown and then spun out. And our ex-CEO actually runs that organization. It's his company, uh, MPI. And so if someone that was a lead on a job and now we're thinking of moving them to a supervisory role, maybe a year in advance, we try to get them into management training so that at least they can learn the lingo that we use because there is different lingo and definitely what it's like to be a first-time manager or going from being a first-time to a middle manager or an executive. So that's important. Wow. So you really focus on the health of the customer the employee, and your financial health. And talk a little bit about that. And something that you had mentioned to me, which I thought was fascinating, is you really watch your net promoter score. What is that and why? You hit them right on the head. There's what I'll call the three sides of the triangle in our business. And the first one is net promoter score. And net promoter score, I don't know if everybody's familiar, a lot of companies, we've been using it now well over 10 years. It was We were fortunate enough that one of our partners was able to go to GE's think tank years ago, down close to New York City, where their training facility was. And they were just rolling out net promoter score at the time. And so we got insight into it. And basically what net promoter score is, is And some companies do it more often. We choose twice a year. Basically, you ask your customer one question. On a scale of one to 10, would you recommend us as a vendor to your friend or to a colleague or to your family member? And they give you a number, right? And so nine and 10 is what's called the promoter. I call them neutral is seven and eight is that score. And then anything six and below is considered a detractor. So what you do is you look at your overall pool of folks that you talk to. And we, like I said, do this twice a year. We don't talk to just the person that gives us the PO. We talk to the field techs that we're interfacing with. We talk to the person that's giving us the POs. And we're talking to any influencers that could be engineers, things of that nature. We gauge their temperature via that scoring grade. And what you do is you take your overall number and you divide it by your detractors, and that gives you a number. So it's not a percentage, but it's a raw numerical score. And so if you look at, over time, the different companies that are considered best in class, Apple is always at the top of the list, right? They score in the 70 to 80 range, typically. And everybody talks about BMW and how great BMW is. Well, BMW scores in the 20 range. And then the ones that do worse of all are usually financial and insurance companies. They typically rate in the negative numbers. So um, like I said, we do this exercise twice a year for about 11 or 12 years now. And we're typically in that 65 to 75 range which puts us in best in class. So uh, nice. I'm really excited about that. That's one of yeah. the things I'm really proud of. So that's the net promoter score. Another piece of the triangle is our employee surveys that we do. 
Mm-hmm. And we do all hands on deck meetings twice a year where we do face-to-face meetings. Obviously, last year we changed that where we had to do them remote. But we have a survey based on the book, First Break All the Rules, uh, mm-hmm. which has been around for many, many years. It's basically a 12-question survey. And there's actually a couple other organizations that now do that same process and they sell you a program to do it. We just do it in-house manually. But basically, you give that to the employees. They grade you one through five, five being excellent, one being your dog meat, and three being neutral. And so what that does is you boil those 12 questions down to four different parameters on the health of the business. And we typically are in the 80 to 85% range. To me, the number is less important because there are some variables that give you different scores based on how many people take the test, if they're new or not. So there's a few different variables that can change that. But what you can do is you can trend line over a period of time what the fluctuation is. So what you don't want to see is significant swings one way or another from the question. You want to make sure you're kind of staying consistent. And what that'll tell you is if you do see a drop in any one category, then we can boil it down further from going from the organization level down to senior management level, down to regional level, or down to the individual supervisor, right? Because integrating our performance. And so then, hey, we can see if there's a big change, maybe one supervisor is doing something that maybe is causing that. And then we can have a conversation with them to make adjustments as needed. So that's really important. And then the final piece of the triangle is the financials. So you have to have all three being healthy to be a good, healthy organization. And so we are very adamant about closing our books every month. I don't get too crazy if we know over time that typically the first quarter is soft. Second quarter, we start picking up momentum. Third quarter, usually we're drinking from the fire hose. And <laughs> third quarter is sometimes you're drinking from the fire hose as well. And sometimes it's business as usual. So we can grade that. We've got a lot of metrics. And so that helps us manage the business. And we're constantly evolving with those metrics as well, trying to dial them in you know, to see growth patterns, what products are doing better than others. There's just a lot of different information you can gather by analyzing that. So Paul, what is your strategy for hiring? Are you finding it difficult to find qualified people now? Or is it easier than it was last year? So no, it's not easier. Finding good people is always very, very difficult, right? You can find people but is it the right people that fit into your organization? And my guys and girls will tell you, we're not the easiest place to work at. So it definitely takes the right person that fits into our culture. And then we work with quite a few different staffing companies. And so for broad staff, we use broad staff for more higher level folks, engineers, project managers. Actually, we've got a position open right now for a knock manager for our Peelit software. So depending on what the need is, is what organization we work with. So that's number one. Number two, we also try to do some of that in-house as well. So we do have a recruiter in-house and that works closely with engineering. That recruiter typically manages more of the staffing companies than we do in recruiting. But we do pump stuff out through our website. We do use LinkedIn And I also been working on trying to really partner with some colleges and universities, mostly community colleges, really to get kids coming out of there that have either a IT or engineering background, as well as electrical, electrician type background as well. And dovetailing that, and I forgot to mention, we also created a AC electrical apprentice program that mirrors the program that the IBW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and that's a program where we have instructor and then we have a bunch of online tools that allow folks that are in the program. So it's a robust program. It's a four-year gig. 
It's a once a week class they have to do remotely. And then there's modules that they're responsible to do homework on and get graded and testing. But that'll get them to the position where the schooling and with the hands-on stuff that we're giving them will allow them to go out and get an electrical license as a journeyman and hopefully as a master electrician. So as our needs evolve on the electrical side, we're finding it very difficult to find electricians. So we felt since our background in DC has really created a lot of folks that can easily migrate into the AC world and do both, which is kind of unique because most organizations aren't like that. You're either an AC contractor and you do AC work and UPSs or big builds or services, Mm -hmm. or you do DC. The two usually don't mix. So I do think that that may be a strategy for success in the future as well. Yes. And the other strategy that you use is you use some contract to hire or temp to perm where you bring people on a contract basis and then you convert them to a full-time role. So what is your motivation behind that? Why does that work for you? So people always look great on paper, right? And a lot of folks are very good at interviewing and it's very difficult to really get to what's a person like when they're working. So the temp to perm works great in that respect, in that we can find candidates, we bring them in. If they work out as a temp person, and usually you can tell the first week, everybody's always great. The second week, you start getting a little, "Mm, maybe not so great. And then, you know, (laughs) by a month, you know if they're good or not. So typically that month or two, usually by the second month, for sure, you know how a person's going to be. And it may cost us more upfront doing that model, but I do think in a lot of cases helps us not make bad hires. So in a bad hire, I read somewhere if a person is a 50, 60, $70,000 a year person and it's a bad hire, it probably costs you about 200 grand. So does it make sense for me to spend 10 or 15 or 20,000 working with someone like you? to try to find the right candidate. Yeah, I think it does. Some people may say, oh, you're throwing money away. I don't see it that way. What you do is unique. We build stuff. We're not great at finding people. (laughs) You definitely have to stay in your swim lanes. You are so right about that, Paul. I agree with that. Stay in your lane and stay where you're really good. And we love telecom and tech, and that's where we're good. And people, that's our specialty. So Paul, ever since I've met you and had every interaction with you and spoken to you, as well as recruiting for you and the people that we've placed with you and that work at ANS and they're happy and they talk about the culture and the leadership there, I believe that you are one of the greatest leaders in telecom. What are your leadership principles? What guides you? It's interesting. At the beginning of the pandemic, we always had our core values and things of that nature. But when COVID hit, I started hearing some CEOs talk about stuff and it started really resonating. So one was keeping everybody safe. The other one was creating and preserving jobs. The third one is constantly investing in your folks. And the fourth one was really taking care of our customers. So those are really our four guiding principles. And then if you boil it down, what makes you successful? So On my mind, a lot of it's about loyalty. And I'm not talking about loyalty from a blind perspective and you follow everything I do or everything I say. That's not the case. But we all have to be loyal to each other as an organization. So I would say we're loyal to ANS, not to an individual. And so that's a big part of our culture. The family dynamic, I think, is another one in having that flexibility not beating people up when they make mistakes and you just learn from them, I think is important in that constant education. And it doesn't have to be formal education, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to be learning something new to be relevant. And then also having a purpose in life are important. There's some other goofy ones too, that I can throw in there. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us the goofy ones. So with the family thing, a lot of the folks that are in our organization, you know, we all have kids. So we embrace that, right? We talk about our kids. A lot of companies poo-poo that kind of stuff. I don't think that's the case. I think we should embrace that more. We don't have a problem with folks that have 
kids that may need a job in the summer. And if they work out, hey, they can become a full-time employee. So that's one. We do that. The other thing I noticed is we kind of have folks that come from a couple different backgrounds, right? So we do have a fair amount of folks that work for us that are immigrants, okay, Mm -hmm. Um, out in the field. And I would definitely throw myself in that category as well. So that, I think, brings the hardworking aspect of a lot of folks that are similar to my background. I think we also have a lot of guys that come out of agriculture and farming, which is interesting as well, because like immigrants, typically the guys that are working or girls that are working on a farm are typically getting up when the sun's coming up and working till the sun goes down. So oh, yeah, those are two unique things that I don't think we've ever formalized, but are definitely true. Another goofy one, a lot of us have dogs, right? So <laughs> I don't know what that means. Does it mean we're, you know, empathetic to animals and things of that nature? But look at our organization. I don't know what the number is, but I guarantee we're probably at least 80% of us are dog owners. Wait, what about cats? Does anybody own cats? You know, cats too. Right? <laughs> cats, so, you know, cats, yeah. dogs, whatever the case may be. But a lot of us have cats and dogs. Right. Uh, I used to have a turtle. So I think, <laughs> you know, something else that is just a goofy fact of folks. The other thing is we do quite a few personal get-togethers, whether it's Christmas parties in the past, whether it's the semi-annual meetings that we do with the folks where we always break bread as part of that, and then just going out to the job site and visiting folks. Yeah that nature. But because of COVID, that's kind of put a little damper on that. So we've tried what's called after dark at ANS. That kind of sounds a little risque, <laughs> but, but basically we've done a couple team building exercises. One was based on space travel. We've done some bingo nights. We have a poker league. We really had a lot of fun this year with the NCAA basketball thing where we threw in there a $100 gift card and I potted up a hundred bucks too for anybody that won. I almost was there and won it, but I, <laughs> USC kind of killed me that one basket. And if they would have won, I would have won, but they didn't win. So I didn't win. So it's kind of fun <laughs> things like that. That's awesome. And you know, the simple fact that you know, I mean, how many employees do you have again, total? We're about 150 and typically we okay. up to around 200-ish. I've tried to get us to the 50-50 model of 50% in-house, 50% contracted or subcontracted. We're all around that. I mean, some years it's 60-40, some years it's 50-50, some years it's 70-30, but that's the benchmark I try to get. So potentially we would have around 300 folks working for us in the busy time of the season, whether it's actual subcontractors or staffed personnel, as well as our own. That's great. So, Paul, what is next for ANS? What's your vision for the future? You heard me talk a lot about it. It's really that melting of utility work and and really just pushing the electrical piece much more than we have in the past. So I think you're going to see over the next five years, ANS really developing that AC electrical contracting model in support of, in a lot of cases, of the work we do in the telecom space, as well as the EV charging stations. So we're very bullish on what's going to happen over the next several years with the infrastructure bills that are coming out and some of the money that's getting put out there uh, from the government standpoint. And as you know, if you look at history and you have to really look at history to know what the future is going to be like, like after World War II, there was a huge emphasis in the U.S. about building our roads and bridges and infrastructure out and utility grid. And now that's getting older and there needs to be a new emphasis on doing that. And so really what we want to do is some people would say we're trying to take advantage of the situation. I actually like to say that we're trying to create jobs for folks that are meaningful so that they can have a good family life. I mean, at the end of the day, we all have the same thing in common is that we want to have our family. We want to spend as much time with our family and make sure they're taken care of. And a job is just an end to that mean. 
So yes. uh, really our focus and seeing those two melt together is great for us. And that's where we're going to push towards. Well said, Paul. So I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now who are wondering, where do I go to learn more about ANS jobs or possibly that want to hire you? Sure. As a vendor? So the best way is to go to our website, right? Everybody says www.anscorporate, which is A-N-S-C-O-R-P-O-R-A-T-E.com. We do have job postings there. We have a bot actually on there that you can talk to that will get you to the right person in HR or in sales. So that really is what we're pushing everybody towards. I mean, obviously, some of you know us and you can contact us. You can obviously contact Carrie as well and her team. She will funnel the info to us and we're okay with paying you to do that. So. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Those are definitely Thank you. It, those. You've been wonderful. Really, Paul, you all at ANS have been wonderful to work with. And we are honored and we appreciate that. And most of all, I want to thank you for being on the show today because just getting a bird's eye view or a peek into your amazing company and also who you are and your team and your culture, I think has really been a benefit for everyone to learn more about what's possible for the future. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Paul. Thank you so much, Carrie. I'm grateful for the time to spend with you and talk about this stuff. And any time in the future, you know, I definitely have the gift of gab. So <laughs> I can talk about other stuff too. I love it. We'll do it again. And I know yeah. I'll see you soon at some event somewhere once we open up again. So thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Take yeah. care. Thank you for listening to another informative episode of 5G Talent Talk brought to you by RCR Wireless News, Telecom Careers, and Broadstaff Talent Solutions. As we advance into the future, we promise to bring you the resources you need to navigate this ever-changing landscape of 5G to help you attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. To access the show notes or leave a review, visit broadstaffglobal.com. Until next time.